Hi, everyone. Droop Road here with the Broken Brain Podcast with another fantastic episode. Today, we have Dr. Sean Tassone, who is a board-certified OBGYN and integrative medicine doctor, here to talk all about women's hormonal health. Dr. Tassone has seen over 40,000 women in his career and is crazy passionate about being an advocate for patients and truly educating them about their bodies and the choices available to them. We dig into a bunch of topics in this interview, ranging from how our hormones can impact our brain health to how to address the root hormonal issues that impact our sex life and libido. We also talk about the mind-body connection and how our mindset and spiritual health are even more powerful than what we eat. Sometimes we focus just on what we eat as a society and our mindset and our spirituality are so important. They control so many aspects of our bodies. We dig into all of that in today's interview. If you care about the topic of women's hormonal health or the mind-body connection, this interview is for you. You're going to love it. As always, please review us on Apple Podcasts and Google Play and consider, consider sharing this podcast with a friend or a loved one if you enjoyed any of the recent episodes. Super easy. You can just tell them about it and they can download it on Spotify or Apple iTunes or Google Play or listen to it on our website. Now, on to my formal intro for Dr. Sean Tasso. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perowit, executive producer of the Broken Brain docuseries. This podcast is dedicated to continuing the conversations that Dr. Hyman and I started during the Broken Brain series. Each week, we'll invite a new guest who we think can help you improve your brain health, feel better, and most importantly, live your best life. Today's guest on the podcast is Dr. Sean Tassone. Dr. Tassone is a board-certified OBGYN and by the American Board of Integrative Medicine. He holds a medical degree in addition to a PhD in mind-body medicine. In his 20 years of practice, Dr. Tassone has seen over 40,000 women and is highly regarded patient advocate. As an integrative healthcare practitioner, Dr. Tassone believes that you, as the patient, should have an active role in your care. His work includes studies and publications on spirituality in medical care, whole foods to heal the human body, and integrative medicine. Dr. Tassone has been featured in many publications, including the New York Times, NBC News Online, and Stanford MedEx. Dr. Tassone, welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I want to talk a little bit more about your background and all the incredible work that you do for women and just the stand that you are as a patient advocate for women. So you spent the last 20 years dedicating yourself to that practice. How did you get interested in becoming an OBGYN? And where did the journey of getting into integrative medicine fall into that? I think the OBGYN decision, you know, when you make your decision, obviously you're probably in your third or fourth year of medical school. And you'd like to think you know what you're doing, but you probably don't. And it's kind of like, deciding your major in college. Uh, there's a lot of stress around that. But I think what I did was I looked at the other residents in the OB programs around, you know, the program that I was in and when I started interviewing, and they all seemed to be relatively happy. Uh, OB as a profession in general is, is fairly happy. You know, you have the best of times for the most part. Occasionally you can have some downtimes, but for the most part as a profession, delivering babies and things like that, it tends to be a happier uh, profession. And so I think that uh, is ultimately what influenced my decision. Ultimately, the integrative medicine piece didn't really fall into place for me until about 2001, 2002, when my mom passed away uh, in 2001 from ovarian cancer. I was initially in residency um, in the late 90s, in my second year of residency, when she was diagnosed. And then five years later, after going through chemo and surgery and all the trimmings that go along with that and being a resident and then a, a young physician, I found that I couldn't help her. And I not only couldn't help her, I couldn't even help her suffering. I, I couldn't ease any of the suffering. I, I couldn't really, I'm the only child. I couldn't really, um, you know, you you have this parent who took care of you and, and, um, you know, did everything for you. And I couldn't do anything for my mother and I didn't know anything. And so when she passed, I, th I think it was kind of that, um, there's a, there's a, uh, shamanic group in the Amazon 
that uh, takes this uh, sacred vine called iboga. And while they're, it's a coming of age vine, they drink this uh, concoction. And while they're having this hallucinogenic experience, the elders of the tribe conk them on the head with a rock and uh, basically breaks open their head. And when they break open their head is when the the teachings of the ancestors can go into their brain. And I kind of look at my mother's passing as kind of that rock that conked me on the head and, and really opened me up to the possibility that there's more to this life than just prescribing medications or, you know, doing surgery. And there just was more to this than meet the eye. And so, gosh, for the next 13 to 15 years, I've just been on this journey. It's amazing because we've had so many practitioners come on the podcast that they've had their own health crisis. And here was somebody that was close to you, which sometimes can be even more impactful than your own healing journey. What was it? Your mom went through those experiences and you felt the pain of not being able to do something for her. And then what was the kickstart to actually discovering integrative medicine? Did you come across a book? Did somebody recommend something? Was it just, was there one place that was the starting off place, the jumping off place? Well, it's funny because we, I lived in Tucson at the time, which is about three and a half hours south of Sedona. So I went to Sedona, seems like a natural place to go, obviously very spiritual and energetic. And um, in Sedona, I was reading this crazy book at the time. It was 2002 and it was by this crazy doctor by the name of Andrew Weil. And uh, in it, he was talking about fish oil and CoQ10 and yoga. And I was like, oh my gosh, this stuff is so crazy. But I mean, now you look at it and go, yeah, it makes perfect sense. But back then I was in this spa um, and these red mountains with, you know, these green trees and the cypress and it smelled good. And I'm reading this stuff and I finished the book and at the back of the book, it says, if this is interesting to you, they had this two-year fellowship where if you were a provider, you could you know, do this stuff for real and learn about all this crazy stuff. And so it just so happened that the University of Arizona, which is where he was, was in Tucson. And I kind of just took that as a sign and uh, signed up. Like while I was sitting in the spa, they had a computer. I just like signed up right then and there and did this uh, two-year fellowship from 2005 to 2007, I did the the program eventually. And uh, in that two-year program, there was an eight-week section on spirituality and health. And that really sent me in another direction that there is the possibility that spiritual practices could have some sort of an impact on our health. And so that then sent me in this other direction, which in 2009 sent me on a a five to six year quest where I got a PhD in philosophy. So for my own money's sake, let's hope I don't go off on another tangent and look for some other degree because I don't think I can afford it at this point. <laughs> well, we'll be the recipients of whatever knowledge you decide to consume next. But we'll start at least with the knowledge. We have so much to unpack with already the two degrees you have here. So I want to dig into it all. And I, and I want to jump around. You know, you made a reference to plant medicine. I want to come back to that a little bit later on. I think it's a unique topic, an interesting topic, especially when you weave in spiritual transformations and how they can really open up the body, especially when we're not getting better from diseases. Is it a spiritual disease? Is it a physical disease? So I would love to get your thoughts on that. But I want to start off with hormones. As an OBGYN, there's so much expertise that you have with hormones and helping unpack that topic. So I want to start off with this first thing. You know, it's beautiful we live in this day and age where we're really fighting for, on all fronts, equality amongst all the sexes that are there. And inside of the space of wellness, there's this acknowledgement that, yes, everybody should have equality and we should look at all these opportunities for everyone. And that's part of the monitoring of it, while also understanding sometimes the fundamental differences that are there between different people's bodies. It's okay to treat people's bodies differently based on the unique chemical makeup and the way that they function. So I'm going to start super broad because our audience is often new to these subjects. So let's talk about female hormones. What are some of the first things to help us understand about how the male and female bodies work differently, especially when it comes to hormonal health? Well, I think what we need to understand first is that, you know, we, we all have the same hormones. I, 
I think that we think, you know, men have testosterone, women have estrogen. Well, we all have both. We just have them in different concentrations. Obviously, men have much higher testosterone than women and women have much higher estrogen than men. But I think that it's all about balance. And for men and for women both, it's all about balance. I also think that women hormonally are a much more complex system than men. I think that, and I don't mean that, you know, it's funny, I joke about in in some of my books and blogs and whatnot as a kid, I used to, you know, joke with my mom, you know, she, she had a hysterectomy when she was in her early 30s. And she had one of her ovaries removed. And naturally, they put her on hormone replacement therapy. And if she was mad at me, and yelling at me about something, I would ask her if she took her pill. Because obviously, she was mad at me because it was her hormones. It wasn't because I was being some jerk teenager, right? So I think we do blame things on women's hormones more than men's hormones. Like guys don't sit around and say, dude, you check your testosterone, you're being a real jerk today. So I think we do blame things on women's hormones uh, more than men's. But I think what we don't look at is we talk about hormones a lot, but we don't always talk about the balance of those hormones. And I think that's really what's important. And to look at the balance, even in women and men that are young. So there is hormonal imbalance going on in a female body as early as 12, which could be normal because she's going through menarche or you know, that first period, or for a boy who's going through, you know, like I have a 14 year old right now whose voice is cracking and it's pretty funny and we laugh and stuff, but that's a hormonal imbalance. And that's why they have their little rages and they have their phases that they go through. But you don't want to have a person who's 29 that's going through something like that. So at certain points in life, hormone imbalances are okay, but at other points in life, they're not okay. And I think the other thing I often talk to patients about is menopause. It's a hormonal imbalance, but it's completely natural. I have women come in all the time and they say, I want to do whatever's natural. Well, menopause is natural. It kind of sucks, but it's natural. And I think the problem with menopause is, like it or not, we live too long. We have learned how to eat well and exercise, and we don't have... Uh, tigers chasing us and killing us. So we live a lot longer. Well, our bodies, I don't think have adapted yet and haven't learned the ovaries just haven't had time to catch up. So maybe in two or 300 years, we'll have menopause around 70, but right now it's around 50. So we have this concept of hormone imbalance. I think we throw the term around a lot, but the reality is I think it's pretty important. That's why we have a lot of issues with weight gain, with mood swings, with irritability. You can go down the list for women and men. And I think most of what we see, 90% of the problems that I see in my clinic are probably hormonally related. Yeah, and and let's talk about what some of those problems are that people come in on. And and you're right. I think hormones are typically something that we often think of as being an issue for people that are going through very specific stages, but they're constantly playing a role. So... I think it's often for our, it's often great for our listeners to work through an example. What's something that somebody might come into your clinic with they're dealing with that has a major implications in hormones, but it might not be the first thing that our listeners would be thinking about? Well, I think, you know, headaches, big one. Insomnia is a huge one. I obviously see uh, female patients as a gynecologist, uh, irritability. Um, and, and these are all interrelated. Everybody uses the analogy of a symphony. I, I don't really like that one because I think it's overused, but I use the analogy of a watch. And if you take the face off of the watch and you see all the gears that are underneath, if the gears, the smaller gears and the, the larger gears, if one of those gears isn't turning properly, the face of the watch isn't going to tell the right time. And if you have the cortisol gear is turning too quickly and it's going to, you know, make that estrogen gear move a little faster, then the body's going to basically burn through. It's going to be catabolic. It's going to burn through proteins. It's going to, you know, blah, blah, blah. Patient's going to not sleep well or whatever, uh, gain weight, you know. So a lot of these things you're going to see are end results. So somebody that has a weight problem, you know, we can, I think what happens is weight is a huge thing. So we see people People that have weight problems, unfortunately, wear a lot of their emotional problems on their sleeves because you can see it. Well, 
maybe some of their problem is that they might eat poorly, but maybe not. Maybe they um, have high cortisol, high estrogen, and they just can't, they're doing the things that they need to do. They're, they're eating 80 to 85% clean. They're exercising pretty well, but man, their hormones just aren't giving them a break. And so some of weight loss is hormonally related. Thyroid optimization, you know, I think Dr. Hyman would probably agree with me. It's, it's a lot of individualization and looking at a person as an individual versus, you know, when we talk about patients with normal labs, you know, you've got a thyroid. Okay, well, normal was whatever the normal range was for the 5,000 people they just tested these labs on, but that may not be your normal, you know? And so I look at these normals, but I mean, the things that I see on a daily basis decreased libido is huge and and we know that decreased libido for a female is more than just testosterone but testosterone can make you feel good so if your testosterone is in the tank and i will tell you i have a, an online quiz that's really accurate and it checks for 12 different hormonal imbalances and i used to think that estrogen dominance was going to be the number one hormone imbalance in women that took the test and so far, I've had about 6,000 women go through it, and testosterone deficiency by far and away is number one. And I'm still shocked by that because I wasn't expecting that. But if you don't feel good, if a woman doesn't feel good, if she's tired at the end of the day, if she doesn't have any energy, she's not going to have a sex drive. And, and so indirectly, testosterone deficiency is going to have a bit uh, – it's going to affect your libido. And so those are some of the big ones for sure. Let's run through some of the things that are happening in our modern life that impact these hormones. Like why do we see so many challenges where hormones are the issue? One you mentioned is that we're living longer. So there's things that are that are natural that we sometimes don't like or want to fight against in. But what about when we're even when we're younger? Like what are the things that are affecting us? Can you run through some of the aspects of modern day living that can cause major havoc on our hormonal systems? Well, primarily, I mean, we eat horrible. I mean, I'm not talking about you, but I mean, I try to be a good dad. I'm a single dad and, um, you know, my kids aren't overweight. They're actually really thin, but they don't necessarily eat well. And that's because, you know, I'm trying to get home at six o'clock and get something for them to eat that's not always, you know, clean or whatever. So I think diet is huge. Uh, obviously, uh, are we using, you know, hormone-free meats? Are we using organic foods? Those are all super expensive. Energetically, are we super stressed? I mean, from kids, I know we're talking about a society where we may be not the smartest society in the world, but I think our kids you know, the, horm the the backpacks that they wear, the homework that they get, the sports that they're doing, they're super stressed, uh, the workloads that people do in this country. I mean, I have friends that live in different countries. They don't work the way that we work. They have way more holidays than we have. I think we live super stressed lifestyles and we don't sleep very well. I don't think that we necessarily exercise the way that we should. Sometimes we don't know that we have a cortisol uh, issue where we might we might have too much cortisol. If you have too much cortisol and then you try to do high intensity interval training, you might actually be doing yourself a disservice. So sometimes it's better to know exactly what you're dealing with before you design some sort of an exercise pattern. I also think that uh, in our society, it's probably important to have proper supplementation. I think you know going to Whole Foods and or one of those other stores that people go to and they ask the 18-year-old clerk, what should I take? I don't know what to take. I think it's better for our naturopaths and you know our MDs or our osteopaths to really have a firm grasp on what's a good, you know, good brand of supplement, what's the dosage to take. But really I think, you know, it comes down to nutrition first, stress second, and then proper sleep. I don't think we sleep very well. We wake up, we grab our phones. I mean, my boys they're 14 and 17, my two youngest, and they don't they don't go to bed. I mean, I, I have to wake up and tell them I have to take their phones physically some of the time because they don't put them away. And that light turns off their melatonin. They're not sleeping well. They get up early to go to school. That's not good for cortisol levels. I just think we're we're doing ourselves a serious disservice. If you had to give a breakdown, just going back, because I, I love when 
the guests in this podcast really take the things that sometimes they might take for granted and they know obviously you're a doctor, you have a PhD, there's so many different things that you've gone through in courses. But for a lot of people that are listening to this podcast, they've of course they've heard of hormones, they've heard of things like estrogen and testosterone, but give us the basic mechanisms, top line of how hormones even function in the body and some of the key hormones and the names that we've heard out there and what they do. I know we can't dive deep into it, but again, let's give an overview and a map of how this world is laid out, if you wouldn't mind doing that. So I just tell people to think about hormones as kind of like uh, messengers. So you have a gland that receives a signal from somewhere else in the body. So if you look at the thyroid, the thyroid's going to release the thyroid hormones, T3 and T4, and those thyroid hormones are going to go through the bloodstream to different uh, cells in the body, whether it's the heart to tell it to speed up or to other organs in the body to help metabolism. They're going to hit receptors on those cells, and then that cell is going to do whatever it's supposed to do. But the thyroid is going to receive its signal from the pituitary gland, which is kind of like the master gland that's going to receive more. So the, some of those thyroid hormones that come out of the thyroid gland feed back to that pituitary gland to tell the thyroid gland to either make more or make less. So I tell patients to think of it this way. If that TSH level, that thyroid stimulating hormone level coming down is really high, that's kind of like that gland screaming at the thyroid to make more because there isn't enough. If it's a really low level, that's kind of like it's whispering. It's like, okay, we have enough. We don't need any more. So the actual hormone itself is like a chemical messenger that's floating around the body. So the big ones are going to be uh, T3 and T4, which are the thyroid. Uh, you got estradiol, estrone, and estriol, which are your three estrogens. Progesterone, you've got uh, testosterone, DHEA, vitamin D, and melatonin, which is actually a hormone. And then you also have cortisol. And the DHEA and cortisol are made in the adrenal glands, which sit right above. They're like little walnut-shaped glands that sit right above the kidneys. Estrogen, progesterone are primarily made in the ovaries. And testosterone is made half in the ovaries and half in the adrenal glands. So these glands receive their signals from either the pituitary or the brain or somewhere else and makes those hormones to send messages to other tissues in your body. You talked about sometimes people not even realizing that they have a hormonal issue and how it's almost like you have to be a little bit of a Sherlock Holmes, a detective to link what you're feeling back to it. You have a great quiz on your website. We'll link to it in the show notes so that people can check it out. But what are some of the warning signs that hormones are out of balance? What should people be looking at in their own body to see if hormonal health is something they need to focus on? You know, it's funny because I think we all have that gauge where you don't feel right. And maybe it's okay to feel that way for a bit. But I mean, I get it all the time where um, patients will come in and I'm usually the second or third physician they've seen and they've had labs drawn and they have the list of things, you know, I, I don't sleep right. My periods aren't regular. I've gained 20 pounds. My breasts hurt. I'm getting headaches all the time. I'm miserable. I don't feel like myself. I just can't do the things that I want to do. They know that something is wrong. Like they don't feel the way they want to feel. And I'm not talking about a 50 year old that wants to feel 20. I'm talking about a 50 year old that maybe a year ago could go out and do stuff like garden, go to the lake, do the things that she wanted to do. And now she's kind of like, you know, she just feels miserable. She doesn't want to go out and do stuff. She doesn't feel like herself. And she kind of has to force herself to do things. She doesn't get the same amount of joy. And she just knows that, you know, something isn't right. She's doing the same things that maybe she used to do. But when she gets labs drawn, she's told that, you know, they're, they're, you're fine. It's just part of getting old. That's the other thing you hear a lot. You know, it's just part of getting old. Well, why, why is getting old suck? I don't, I don't understand that. I never have understood that. And I always tell patients, you know, normal doesn't always mean normal. I look at things as more of a kind of a structured balance. It's not just 
is estrogen normal, is progesterone normal? Because a normal estrogen could be literally anything, if you're looking at picograms and you're in a certain lab value, 19 to 500. Okay, well, that's fine. You um, mean in the reference range that people are looking yeah. at when they get, get it back from their doctor, yeah. the blood results? Or progesterone, it could be 0.2 to 20. Okay, well, that's fine too. But let's say the reference comes back, your progesterone is 0.2, your estrogen is... 200. Well, I like to, I found, and this is just anecdotal with my own patients, that a, a good estrogen to progesterone ratio is about 10 to 1. Women tend to feel better when it's around 10 to 1. Well, if your estrogen is 200 and your progesterone is 0.2, that's about 1,000 to 1. That does not feel good. I, I mean, it just, they're normal, they're normal levels, but the ratios are often by simply giving her a little bit of progesterone to go to bed at night because it will help her sleep and to maybe give her some DIM, which is a diendole methane, which is a, in cruciferous vegetables to help her push some of that estrogen to a to methoxy form of estrogen and to increase fiber intake, which will help bring down some estrogen uh, levels by reabsorbing some of that estrogen. She may feel like a different human being. And I mean, I see it all the time. And it's not like you're making major adjustments, but you could certainly look at those labs and say, oh, they're normal, but she doesn't feel normal. So I think the answer to your question in a very circuitous manner is if you don't feel normal and if you know what your normal used to feel like, I don't think that that changes. I don't think your normal changes. Just because you're 60, normal should still feel normal. I mean, I know that's, I mean, it sounds kind of like common sense, but you shouldn't be, you know, tired and not wanting to get off the couch just because you're 60. I mean, take a nap, get up, and you should be ready to go again. You may not want to jog five miles, but you should be able to get up and do stuff, right? And we have plenty of examples, whether it's the Blue Zones or other communities around the world, of people who may not have as many things that are disrupting their hormones or living a life that is more in harmony with how that symphony is working in the body. And, and that's how they feel. That's how they show up. That's how their incidences of diseases are there. I want to go back to one thing you said. Now, part of what you were sort of really making as a key distinction, which is, I think such a crucial point, is that just because you get blood work back from your physician who means well and is just doing the best they know how, and it says that it's normal, doesn't mean that it's normal. We have to go off of how it feels. I want to ask you sort of a piggybacking off of that is sometimes are there lab results that the physician is not ordering because they're not aware of, which would complete the story out. So sometimes can you have, even if a doctor is checking your hormones, do sometimes physicians, again, who mean well, order what you would think of as like incomplete lab work? Oh, sure. And I would probably consider myself in that group, gosh, maybe even up until a couple of years ago. I I think it's a learning process. And if you think about it, I just do women's health. I just do women's hormones, which allows me to get really focused on women's hormones. I think if you do men and women, you know, it's a little harder to go as deep because you're having to do both. So I can learn a little bit more tricks of the trade, but I wasn't doing, say, uh, looking at both thyroid hormones. Five years ago, I was just looking at thyroid stimulating hormones. Then I added T4, which is, you know, thyroxine. Now I'm adding triiodothyronine, which is T3. So, you know, as you go on as a provider, you learn things. You learn things by going to or watching other people and, you know, looking at some of the things like, you know, IFM that Dr. Hyman works with and some of the people that teach for them and, and present some of the data um, but I think what happens is when you start adding a few things here and there and you're tweaking a few things, and then the real test is when you bring this to your patients, because those are the people that are going to tell you. And what you find is that just that little tweak in someone's T3, who a low normal is say 2.4 and she's 2.4 and her doctor told her it was normal and you gave her just a little bit of T3 or some armor thyroid, and she comes back to you in, say, four weeks, and she has this look on her face like she hasn't felt this good in two years. Some people might look at you and say, oh, yeah, it's all in her head. 
well, okay, you can say that, but I can measure her T3 and it's gone up to 3.2 and she feels a heck of a lot better. So I feel like it's kind of silly, but I'm just monitoring the labs and I'm looking at this woman who's telling me she feels better. So it's kind of, like I said, it's common sense that instead of treating the number, you're treating the number and the symptom. You're kind of looking at both. I don't know. I find it really fulfilling to add things in as we go. I never, ever used to look at cortisol. And I considered myself fairly progressive. Um, even when I moved here to Austin five years ago, I didn't look at cortisol because I didn't have time. I was delivering babies. I was I was super busy. And it wasn't until I did GYN only. I stopped delivering babies about a year and a half ago. Finally had some time to really dive deeper into the hormones and stuff. And that's when I really started getting more educated on it. And I have really been finding a lot of patients. I had a pharmaceutical rep in the other day who came in. We did a, a urine test on her that showed that her cortisol was, you know, basically not zero, but at the low, low normal all day long. And um, in my quiz, I call that, um, I use archetype language with these hormonal imbalances to kind of help people understand. So like cortisol insufficiency, whatever you want to call that, I call it the saboteur because those women are kind of, they sabotage their own health because they take care of everybody else's needs instead of their own. So I said to this woman, I said, oh, gosh, look at your labs. You're the saboteur. I said, let me guess. You take care of everybody else. You don't ever get to eat right because you cook dinner for everyone. You work hard. You probably get home at 7. You're on the road all the time. I knew she was a pharmaceutical rep. You're on the road all the time. I went through this whole list of things that a saboteur does. And before I could finish telling the story, she started crying. And she said, oh my gosh. She said to me, you just said to me, my entire like last two years of my life and I've been trying to put it into words for doctors and it's not because I'm anything special it's just because I've had uh, 3,000 other women tell me the same story and I've actually listened to it and I have been able to put it into a story and that's the beauty of this quiz is that these 12 archetypes these 12 imbalances I have a story built around them that I think people can finally understand and the, the beauty of it is now you got the story, how do we fix this? And I have a six-step process for each of those that can help women. And only one of those six steps involves hormones. The other five steps are self-care things that you can do on your own. With this being a brain podcast and our series focusing on brain health, help us understand the relationship of hormones and brain health, and maybe even specifically which hormones can impact brain health and brain function? Well, all of them. I mean, geez, the, the brain is like the control center. I'm sure that's probably not the first time anybody said that on your podcast. But I mean, pituitary gland being at the base of the brain, the hypothalamus uh, telling the pituitary what to do. Here's my take too on hormones, except for cortisol and maybe thyroid. The rest of your hormones, your sex hormones, progesterone, testosterone, DHEA, um, estrogen, those aren't necessary for survival, okay? So your body's gonna shut those down. If it can't function, because if the brain is trying to do other things to survive, you know, malnutrition, lack of sleep, stress, all these other things, it's gonna shut the hormones down first, because it doesn't need them. And I'll tell you what, it's an intricate process to run those things. So the brain's gonna say, whoa now, We've got this, we've got this, you know, like Mandarin Chinese thing going on over here. I can't deal with it. I'm shutting this off because way too complex. I'm not going to deal with this and the body's not going to die. It might suffer a little bit, but it's not going to die. So it's going to shut your hormones off first. So that's why hormone imbalance, if the brain's not functioning properly because it's got other, that's why people that are Olympic athletes aren't hormonally optimized because their brains are so taxed from all the working out that they're doing. That's why these women don't have periods because their brain stops talking to their ovaries altogether. They don't, it's shut down. So any stressful situations like that is it's going to, the brain's going to just turn around and shut things down. That being said now in a healthy ecosystem, the brain has all those receptors. So the book, the female brain talks about that where 
you know, oxytocin is going to have the bonding aspects of the chemicals that are released. The estrogen progesterone breaks down into GABA, which, you know, is going to have a calming effect on the brain. And, and actually, you know, uh, when I lived in Tucson and, and Gabby Gifford was shot in the head and had the brain injury, the traumatic brain injury, they used high doses of progesterone to try and stabilize her cranium, her brain injury. So progesterone does have some brain calming effects with GABA. Testosterone, we know, can create some aggressive behaviors. And I always tell women, you know, I can jack your testosterone level up to the level of your husband's. It's not going to make you want sex more. It may make you want to rip his face off, but it's not going to make you want to have sex with him. So it can change emotions, you know, which obviously come from the brain. So from stimulating the brain to have different behaviors to the brain saying, well, I got too much going on. I'm just going to shut this whole system off. Hormones play a huge role. You've talked about sexual function a couple different times and how, you know, just jacking up somebody's testosterone for a woman isn't going to make the difference. So let's talk about that. We've have people write in, people curious. Of course, this relates to emotional health, brain health. If a woman is having trouble sexually or doesn't feel like that libido is there, what do you often look at if that's something that she wants to put attention into? Well, initially, you know, I always have the talk. The first thing I ask a woman that comes in for that is, are you coming in because it's a problem for you or are you coming in because he said it's a problem? Because realistically, most women, it's usually not a problem for them and they're pretty okay with it. It's because there's a little bit of a mismatch there with their partner. If I ask a woman to make a list of the top 10 things that she has to get done that day, 99% of the time, sex is not on the list. For a guy, it's probably somewhere in the top three. So there's a little bit of a mismatch there. Then you add in the fact that on a lot of street corners, now we've got these testosterone clinics popping up and there's Viagra commercials all over the place. We're creating these guys now that are taking testosterone and Viagra in a lot of women that are normal, that are in their well, 40s and to 50s and 60s have normal sex drives, but their husbands are kind of overly stimulated by these medications. And so they feel like there's something wrong with them, I think, when they're actually probably fairly normal. So they come in and they think there's something wrong. So I just kind of have that discussion with them. A libido for a woman, too, also tends to be a lot of other things like stress, fatigue, you know, what do you have to accomplish that day? If the guy comes in, I usually give him a little bit of a talk and say, look, I think you'd probably have better luck if you did the dishes than having her on testosterone. And the other rule is uh, she doesn't have sex with jerks. So it tends to be a lot of factors with women. But if the testosterone is low and you raise it to a more healthy level and she has more energy because women with low testosterone what I tend to see during the day is that probably around two to three or four in the afternoon, they kind of hit the wall. They crash and burn. They're tired. They go pick up the kids from school. They got to make dinner. The last thing they want to do when they get home and get the kids in bed is have intercourse or sex because they're just tired and they don't have anything left. So I think if we can get them feeling a little bit better by just giving them a little bit of, you know, zest back, a little vigor back, then uh, maybe towards the end of the day, if they have that energy back, they might be a little more interested. Makes complete sense. Now, one of the things on your website and in your work with people is that um, in addition to the regular tests, you will also do another test. There's this uh, well-known test out there called the Dutch hormone test. Mm -hmm. In functional medicine and in integrative medicine, there's been a lot of advancements in testing in general with more companies looking to see if they can look at other markers and test in a way to get a more accurate picture. Help us understand that test and, and why you use it in your work with patients. What do you get from that that you may not get from normal testing? So the Dutch is a great test. There's only two downsides to Dutch, one being that it's uh, not covered by insurance costs about $300, but um, for a lot of patients, so does the blood. The other downside is that it takes maybe two to three weeks to get the results. Um, other than that, I think it's a superior test. It will tell you the same hormones that we get with blood. So it checks estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, and DHEA. It will not tell you thyroid. It, the thyroid test still has to be done through blood. 
But what it will give you in addition that the blood does not give you is it will give you the breakdown products from estrone. So estrone is one of the estrogens, and it will tell us if you break down estrone into a more carcinogenic form of estrone or estrogen or a protective form of estrogen. So that helps me because if I'm going to raise your estrogen levels, I'd like to know if you're going to make more of a cancer-forming type of estrogen or not. And if you are, then I can give you a certain type of B vitamin, a methylated B vitamin, or give you DIM, which we talked about, the methane from cruciferous vegetables, that will help with that. So that would be a good piece of information to know. The other thing it gives us is melatonin. So it would be great to know what your melatonin levels are doing, So, um, if, especially if you have insomnia. It will also tell you cortisol, and it will give us cortisol throughout the day, which is super important. Blood can't give us that, so that's a, a very great thing to have. And then it will also give us organic acid testing, so things like serotonin, dopamine, uh, vitamin B6, vitamin B12. It does give us quite a bit more information. So it's a great test. I don't think it's something that needs to be ordered all the time. I tend to use it either right off the bat with some patients if they want to go deeper or for some women who maybe they want to try blood first because blood tends to be covered by insurance. It does come back quickly. I might order a blood test, try them on some hormones. If I can't quite get the dosing right, then sometimes they'll go with the Dutch test because they want to know a little bit more and we can get a lot more information. Um, maybe the cortisol's off or something like that. With your background in philosophy and having your doctor in philosophy, and I know that mind-body connection is so important to you, let's talk about our mind-body and sort of spiritual connection. I know there's a lot inside of there. So you talked a little about the brain and how the brain impacts the body and how the body impacts the brain, but I'd go a little bit deeper and say even... What about our thoughts and how we want to classify that? Or what about our spiritual energy? How do those things impact our health and specifically our emotions? Well, interesting. One of the six steps that I have for all 12 of the imbalances is a spiritual practice. So each imbalance, uh, each archetype has a spiritual practice because I think that that is kind of one of the things that is missing from our model of medical practice. I mean, I can fix your hormones, I can give you progesterone, I can give you estrogen. But if you are, you know, let's say one of the imbalances I have is uh, estrogen dominant. Estrogen dominance I call the queen because that's the consummate female and that's the consummate female hormone, the queen. So what do queens have to do to be good queens? Well. A good queen is going to surround herself with a good support team, right? I mean, you, you got to have good support system. You got to have good counselors. You got to have friends and family. And so one of the things that I have those women do as part of the spiritual practice would be to have a good support system, like go out with friends, have a girl's night or do something with other women that's going to build a support network. So because also estrogen dominant women tend to have a lot of discomfort. They don't feel good. They've gained weight. They feel somewhat miserable. And I think being around friends will help with that. But also to do things like uh, like journaling, because I think that journaling will give you the ability to kind of see your progress. If you even write, say, like a paragraph a day, these spiritual practices can also double as an exercise. So for some people, walking, and I'll have them do like a walking meditation uh, where you might repeat a mantra every time your foot hits the ground. Um, you just repeat that until you're done doing the walk. And you can do that. Yoga is a great example of doing a spiritual practice that is also a physical activity. I think that um, connecting the mind-body, it's funny, I talk about it a lot, I try to do it. I do Bikram yoga, which actually I recommend for, <laughs> it sounds like torture, but I recommend it for women that are in menopause. It's the hot yoga and they're already suffering from hot flashes, but it's kind of like the homeopathic treatment of like uh, treating like, because if you're having a hot flash, but you can do an hour and a half of hot, humid yoga, hot flash probably won't bother you as much. Kind of like putting yourself in the fire 
But what yoga does is it kind of gets you focused on you and teaches you how to, it's meditate. It's a meditative, it's self-meditation. So I think that um, obviously, you know, spiritual practice for me was important enough to make it one of the six pillars of my self-care regimen. That's beautiful. I want to talk about this time that we have left. I want to talk about a topic that's very hot right now and a lot of awareness growing around it. And that's birth control. There's so many beautiful things that birth control in the form of the pill has given to society to take control and make their own decisions and family planning. And there's also some challenges with birth control. And give us an overview and give us your opinion on the subject. What is it that we're waking up to that can often be challenging when it comes to using birth control in the form of a pill and effects that it can have uh, on women's health long term? You know, that's an interesting question because, you know, we've used, gosh, I've been doing this for 20 years and pills have been around for longer, much longer than that. And the great thing about the great thing, I might get chastised for this, but the great thing about birth control pills in the last 20 years is that the dosages have dropped fairly dramatically. You know, we've gone from 50 microgram pills down to 10 microgram pills. So in some cases, the dosages on the estrogen side of the pills has decreased almost 80%. So they have come down pretty dramatically. I think, you know, and I've got one daughter, so I've been through that phase with a younger uh, female in my life that was important to me. The beauty of birth control is that there are so many options available that even if you don't like the idea of hormones, there are a few out there that, that don't have hormones in them, and they, they may not be for everybody. But I do think there are side effects, obviously, with hormonal birth control, and there's some bad side effects. Luckily, they're uh, far and few between, but they're out there. There's a lot that I didn't know about. I just wrote a, an ebook with a Chinese medicine uh, doctor and friend of mine, Natalie Kringudis from Australia, called Contraception Deception that's on Amazon. And I actually learned something in that book, and I'm not afraid to admit that, is that long-term usage of um, birth control can actually cause some mineral and vitamin deficiencies in women. And so had I known that, I probably would have tested my daughter for like magnesium, calcium, vitamins, and things like that, you know, because she started when she was 15. And um, just to make sure that she was okay or had her take a good multivitamin and maybe some magnesium and, and, you know, good fish oil supplement, things like that as she was growing up because I didn't know that. And those are other things. And just being familiar with, you know, nobody wants to read the package insert that's in their prescriptions, not just for birth control, but it's probably something that you should at least go through once if these are medications you're going to be taking for years and years. I just had a lady in the other day that was on Depo-Provera, which is an injectable progesterone for four years. And the manufacturer doesn't recommend that you're on it for more than three years because it can cause osteoporosis because it blocks estrogen receptors. So somebody has been giving it to her for longer than that, which they shouldn't be. You have to go on, you should go on something else for a while just to kind of let your body rest. And so she didn't know that. And so it's good to know what the package inserts say because sometimes the providers don't. You mentioned other types of contraception separate from uh, the pill. Would you mind kind of naming any specifics? And then also recently I was listening to NPR earlier this year and there was an app in, uh, I believe, Sweden that was the first app that was had gone through clinical trials. It's an app, and then I believe that they have a device, and they're taking temperature. It's all connected. It was the first device that was certified by, I guess, the European Union version of the FDA. So what do you think about these different options that are out there when it comes to uh, contraception? So the other options available, I talked about pills, Depo-Provera, you know, obviously the IUDs, uh, the big ones are Mirena, uh, Skyla, which are progesterone-containing uh, IUDs, Latrell, they only have progesterone. There's no estrogen. These go in the uterus. Uh, they can last for three to five years. There's the copper-only IUD, the Paragard, that can last for 10 years if you wanted to. That's one of the only 
non-hormonal birth controls that's not permanent. Uh, you've got NuvaRing, which is a little circular ring that goes inside the vagina, stays in for three weeks, comes out for a week, and then you put a new one back in. Um, you obviously have diaphragms and cervical caps, condoms. These have been around for ages. They haven't changed much. Um, the withdrawal method, obviously. Um, none of these are obviously perfect. They all have their flaws. As far as the um, the new devices go, the one that I'm familiar with, and I don't know if it's the one you're talking about, is called the DAISY. It's a D-A-Y-S-Y. And if it's used correctly, it's a temperature app. It tells you basically when you're ovulating. It has to be used for about three months before it can start giving you accurate data. And it has to be used for three months with you off birth control. So if you can do that three-month period without the birth control, it's about 99.3% accurate, just like most of the other forms of birth control. And it's extremely accurate. So, you know, you'll get pretty good at knowing when you're ovulating. It's, uh, I think, the one downside to the device is they cost, I think, somewhere around three to $400. But if you look at a birth control pill copay of about 30 to $40 a month, you're going to pay for that in a year. So they're pretty affordable, I think. I wish the insurance companies would pay for them because realistically, they're, I mean, there's no side effects if used correctly. Um, and you can, you know, use condoms through that first three months or practice abstinence. The pregnancy rates should be relatively low. And you're going to, one, the, the main side effect is you're going to learn a lot about your body, which I think is is great for a lot of teenagers I, I just think uh, there's a really great possibility here for women that really want to get off of uh, exogenous hormones. That's great. Yeah, I think the app that I was uh, reading about was called Natural Cycles, but we'll link to both of them. And obviously people will have to do their homework to see and take into consideration some of the things that you mentioned. Last item on, on contraception and, and other devices, there's a device by Bayer that's been in the news and you're considered one of the world's authority on the removal of this device and some of the challenges with it. I think it's just worthwhile to touch on it since we're on the subject. Can you talk a little about the device and, and some of the challenges we saw, why, why there's this big movement to increase the awareness and then remove it for women that potentially had that device? It's a hysteroscopic device, meaning it's put in, it's a permanent sterilization device that was uh, brought to market in 2002 to um, put inside the fallopian tubes through the vagina so there was no incisions. And the idea was that it was supposed to be permanent and the tubes would basically scar shut uh, over a three-month period around this device. The benefit we initially thought was that you didn't have to do surgery on the abdomen. So that was kind of nice because there, you know, there's potential risk whenever you go inside the abdomen. So whenever we did a tubal, there's potential for you know, injuring bladder, bowel, blood vessels, things like that. Um, with any medical device, I don't care if it's a hip or knee or whatever, there's always a potential that people are going to have a reaction to it or there's going to be some sort of complication from it. And that's not across the board. It's, you know, there's going to be some certain percentage of women that have issues with it. The device was made to stay in, though. And so over the last four years, I have kind of it wasn't something that I was planning on. It just sort of was something that uh, happened. I started taking some of them out and over time kind of found a population of women that were coming to me with some, you know, issues with pain uh, and bleeding, you know, things, you know, if you go down the list, you know, not necessarily in order, the two big ones being pain and bleeding, but um, some other things like migraines, um, autoimmune disorders, you know, it did get to the point a uh, year and a half ago or so where the FDA did put a black box warning on the device itself that doctors um, were supposed to share with patients before they, you know, put the device in. And eventually this surgery that I performed is a laparoscopic surgery where, you know, there's obviously risks with taking it out. So I have patients call me now from around the country that want the device removed. And it's one of those things where, it's like, so if you have an IUD, which goes in the uterus, those are easy to remove because there's a string attached. 
And for the most part, you, you grab the string and it kind of comes right out. It takes a few seconds. The problems with these devices is that they're made to stay in. They're permanent. They scar in. So in order to remove them, it takes a little bit extra time because you have to put cameras in the belly and you have to kind of, the way that I do it, you have to kind of core around the coil to, to remove this device because part of it's in the uterus, part of it's in the tube. And some women, you know, have a hysterectomy, not all of them, but some of them do. It's just something that I think is, it's been gaining attention probably for the last five years. There's some Facebook pages out there. Esure Problems is one of them. Um, Angie Fermolino is uh, a lady that really um, started that page from ground zero. She was the one that started it, one person. I think now there's over 42,000 women on that page. So, you know, it was kind of a groundswell movement. And um, yeah, it's gotten a lot of attention just recently. Coming back full circle, there's, of course, it's sometimes necessary for somebody to work with a practitioner to really get to the bottom of what their deeper hormonal issues are. And there's plenty of things that we can do at home to also reduce the impact that just modern life has on our hormones. If you would have three things that are your go-to that you give to patients or that you might talk about that are really things that you can do on your own to really start to reduce the impact that, that again, modern life has on our hormones and poor our hormonal health. What are the three things that you would recommend to patients? Well, that's a really good question. And none of them might be super easy. But I'm going to say the, the main thing I always kind of go to is nutrition and really reducing inflammation in the body. So gluten, dairy, trying to find those things in the body that are, you know, inflammatory. And for most of us, I'm not even saying gluten sensitivities, but for most of us, carbs and uh, dairy products are probably pretty bad. So probably limiting um, sugar um, some carbs, unless you're getting them from fruits and vegetables and um, dairy, uh, for most of us is probably a good idea. Uh, secondarily, would probably be to start some sort of a, a spiritual practice. And I think, you know, you can kill two birds with one stone if you do a spiritual practice that also is some sort of an energy expenditure. And I, I know maybe the, the meditators will get upset with me. But if you could do something like a yoga or a, a walking practice where you are actually in a meditative state where you're focused and rather than just sitting in a silence, which is also great, but you know, for those of us that are super busy, we may not have the time to do a 45-minute you know, silence meditation and then also doing some 45 minutes of exercise. If you could do both at the same time with that decrease in inflammation, I think that would be great. And then something on the, you know, I always got to make something on the fun side. I try to give people something fun to do. I think that you can pick something, but I would like to throw in there some sort of physical touch. I think that we just don't do it enough. I know it sounds weird, but it's not bad to get massage or, or acupuncture or, you know, something where you are touching somebody, whether it's a hug or trying to, I think, you know, we release oxytocin, which is anti-inflammatory. We need that as people. I take that test, the five love languages. And, you know, one of my primary modes of communication is physical touch. I like to, you know, put my arm around somebody. I like, you know, I, I like that mode of communication. I think for as human beings, it's electricity. It's a way that we communicate. And I think that, uh, I just think that we don't do it enough. I think that we have increased our personal space. And if you've ever been around somebody from Europe, you know, our personal space is much different than theirs. And um, I think that would really kind of help things. That's awesome. I love that. Dr. Sassone, thank you so much for coming on the Broken Brain Podcast. Where can our listeners learn more about you and some of the great stuff that you have out there, like your uh, ebook and find you on social media? Everything you need to know is on my website, www.tassonemd.com. Uh, the quiz is on there. 
there's a link on there for eSure. If you have eShares, there's a one-on-one consultation online on there. Uh, the ebook is actually uh, my name. If you go on to Amazon, you can find it on there. But most pretty much everything you need, I would challenge people to go take the quiz. I think it's a lot of fun and it's pretty darn accurate. Amazing. And we'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us and talking about hormonal health and all the different things that we can pay attention to to protect our hormones and support the people in our life that that we love and that we care about. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.